Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Welcome to ATP, Asia Tech Podcast number 13, where we're talking about the rise of the digital nomads. Whether based out of Chiang Mai in Thailand or Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, will these location-independent entrepreneurs transform business and society for the next generation or are they just a fad? Keep it locked on Asia Tech Podcast for the next hour to find out. Asia Tech Podcast, voice of the Asian tech ecosystem. ecosystem. Well, I love this topic that you picked this week. This is right up my street. Digital <laughs> nomads. Why, why did you pick that? Why did I? I, I? I think about this a lot, right? I've got a friend, Yuri, Yuri Zuckerman, who is Israeli, Russian by birth, grew up in a grew up in Canada, but then in Ohio, started a business in California, hmm. and then moved, moved is like an operative word, right? Hmm. Somehow between Vietnam and Thailand, hmm. and he runs his company, which is basically based in the United States, from Thailand. He's the only person who's not in the United States, and his, his team in the U.S. is partially distributed, I should say, in the U.S., but also partially in the Ukraine as well. Um, and he's just, I haven't seen him in a couple of months and he's been traveling and I've been kind of following his travels on Facebook. I believe he's in Arizona, but then back in California. So I've just been following, watching him travel around and just thinking we should really talk about this. And, yeah. you know, I started doing research on it. And if you look at where a lot of the digital nomads end up, particularly in this region, it is in, it's probably pretty evenly split between Thailand and Vietnam. Yeah. Well, and if you just... Chiang Mai, particularly, right? I was just gonna say, if you if you do a screenshot of just digital nomad Chiang Mai on um, on Google, you literally go through pages and pages of information. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, starting with no, nomad list on at the top end, starting with what is it, Jet Set Citizen, hmm. for how to. Go to the digital nomad capital of the world, which is considered to be in Chiang Mai. And so I was just thinking about, you know, that in the context of my friend Yuri and then started doing more research on it. And it's just there's so much information on this and there's so many different ways to go about being a digital nomad. And, and again, all of them point to Southeast Asia. I believe there's probably a way to do this in Central and South America as well. Yeah. Right? So, you could live in Belize. You could live in Costa Rica too. Medellin, just not... big, yeah. Medellin in Colombia. In Colombia, yeah. I mean, people don't talk about it a lot, but Medellin has done a pretty good job of creating a good tech startup ecosystem there as well. Yeah, but I think compared to, I mean, all these other ones, you've got Medellin, and I mean, in Europe you have Las Palmas in the Canaries and Budapest. But compared to Chiang Mai, Chiang Mai has just established itself right up in the north of Thailand as the go-to place for, I guess what people do is when they, you know, a lot of people graduate and think, right, where do I go? That's the place that they go. You know, it's the sort of the, the default jumping off point for their adventures, right? Yeah. And to us, there's a certain population out there that still feels like Thailand is exotic. Yeah. <laughs> and if Bangkok is exotic, what does that make Chiang Mai? Yeah. And it's so cheap for these guys as well. I mean, whether you're a, a backpacking guy trying to set up as a freelancer or you, you're building a remote team, to be based in, I mean, look at the economics of it. If you're based in Chiang Mai, the burn time <laughs> that you could achieve living there. I mean, 
<laughs> oh, it's crazy. I mean, compared to Bangkok as well. I mean, Bangkok, you know, by comparison to Tokyo, for example, is, is good value for money. But you got a Chiang Mai and it's just, well, it's a different league, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, look, I know, I know plenty of people who live in apartments in the center part of the city in Bangkok. And they're spending 15,000 baht a month to live in a brand new kind of small one-bedroom apartment. That's $450. Wow. And I know that there are people similar to that who are spending half that, if not a third of that, living in Chiang Mai. So somewhere between five and 10,000 baht a month hmm. um, to live in Chiang Mai and do the same thing. And you know, as we always say, if you have an internet connection, you can pretty much work from anywhere. Yeah. Right. What I find interesting about this, Michael, is that I think the digital nomad thing has been quite fringe for a long, long time. And I was in Chiang Mai a couple of years ago just to go and see what was going on there and meet some of the people. Right. And I know now it's making its way into the mainstream. There's been documentaries and news articles. So it's now out there as, a, as an option for these people. And I think it was kind of interesting is... is Whilst a lot of these businesses are not exitable, you know, a lot of them are lifestyle businesses. There's a whole bunch of them which are, you know, are building what looks in all intents and purposes like a startup, right? But they're just doing it a little bit differently. They, they're doing it in places where they've got a really long burn time so they don't have to go and raise crazy money. And in a, in a way, we're kind of learning something from them as well about what it means to be an ultra lean business because they really are doing lean. I know there's lots of books written about lean, but they are lean, right? So it's kind of filtering back into the startup world as well. Absolutely. I mean, I'd love to hear some examples from you as well about those types of businesses. I mean, I, like I said, just through a bunch of reading and also personal experience, I was looking at this business called Igloo, which I thought was yeah. really, really interesting, right? Um, not only are they running a really lean business in Chiang Mai itself, but because people are slightly nomadic, even inside of Thailand, they were asked by some of their members, and they have members, right? They run a really interesting business, which we can talk about in a second as well. But they were asked by some of their members who said, look, I go down to Bangkok once a month, and I'd love to be able to take advantage of the services you provide here, down there. Hmm. And they opened an office here, and they're already – actually, <laughs> their original space was too small, so they expanded in the same building. And now that's too small. And they're looking to move again in the same building to a much larger floor space. Interesting. Yeah. And what they do is really, really cool, right? So they apply for a license, a BOI license, right? So mm. they're regulated by the Board of Investment. And they essentially hire other programmers. Now, some of those programmers are actually people that are doing startups that don't want to go through the whole process themselves of setting up a company that gets licensed by the BOI. Mm -hmm. But because the BOI license allows you to hire foreigners along with hiring ties without any sort of um, necessary ratio, hmm. they, it ends up being a place that ends up being like a co-working space yeah. where everybody's working for Igloo nominally but there end up being a lot of startup people there who work for themselves and the agreements that they make with each other is that yes we'll work in your space yes we're an employee of your company and we'll actually pay you to work here and you'll rebate some of that money to us and the difference between what we pay and what you rebate is the amount of money that you would legally need to pay us to actually be an employee of your company 
Yeah, that's a fascinating model, isn't it? It really is, and it's a beautiful space, and you go there, and it's high-speed internet and mm. a really nice office space. And again, you know, I read all these articles about remote working, which I think is interesting. We can talk about that too. But there is something in my mind about this sort of serendipitous meeting. Yes. yes. And I'd love to know your opinion on that. I have an opinion, but I'd love to know yours. Yeah, I think if you go to these co-working spaces, you realize... And if you're, a, you know, a, an online programmer, designer, and you go to these spaces, you realize what you're missing. Yeah. Because, you know, I've sat and worked in them just because they happen to be, you know, better than sitting in a hotel room. But you get a real vibe there and you get a lot of regulars who go to the same co-working spaces, you know, and this co-working space is better than that one because this one has, you know, whatever, and this one has a better play area or whatever. And they have you know, really un understood what that generation wants. And they want that kind of experience. They want that connectivity to come together because now all these people are working on their own, but ultimately, you know, we're social beings. We want to come together and connect. And these co-working spaces are redefining what an office should be, I think. You know, rather than one company, one project, they're like many, many companies and many, many projects. And they're, uh, I think, a very, very positive place to hang out in because you, you talk about serendipity, you know, you get ideas that you never would have got before just sitting staring at a screen. So I think co-working spaces are so key to this digital nomad phenomena. They're, they're really like, you know, they are the coffee shops in the, the old London world, right? Of the, you know, that growth of the insurance businesses and all those kind of things that popped up in the 16th, 17th, 18th century. They are kind of like creating that space for these people to come together. Right. And I think there was a little bit of this cyclical move when people stopped working at large corporations. They said, I'll just work out of my house. Hmm. And I think people went stir crazy is probably the wrong word. But I think there was a little bit of what I'll call institutional loneliness. And people, again, started going into coffee shops. And then they realized it's much better for me to be in a place where there's other like daily physical contact, even if the people with whom I'm interacting are not necessarily in my business yeah. or either work with me or for me, right? And this gets back to that serendipity. I, I feel like I've kind of been doing this my whole life. So when I was in college, when I was studying for exams, I'd walk around the library hmm. and I would bump into other students that were studying and ask them, what are you studying for? You know, what's your name? People that I didn't even know. And even when I was at Morgan Stanley or Goldman, I'd get up from my desk just to stretch my legs and walk around to other departments and say, what are you working on? How are you using these tools? And we just figure stuff out like that. Hmm. And I think it's the same thing. There's this whole concept of you know, remote working, which is the topic, but also even if you're not working with the people that are close to you, you need to be around other people just to exchange ideas. And I think that yeah. that's really yeah, it's interesting what you did when you were working in investment banking, getting up and walking around mm. and just, you know, it's kind of, you're seeking out that serendipity. Was that the exception rather than the rule? I mean, did people normally do that? And <laughs> how did that work out? What did you actually get from that? Well, so, I mean, I was in a unique situation, right? Because I was never working in the home office, right? If you consider the home office to be New York City, and I came out of the New York office and transported to the Tokyo office. And it was one of the responsibilities for the expatriates in the office to be the connecting tissue between the remote or satellite offices, which Tokyo still was and Hong Kong was for sure, 
back to New York. But what it allowed me to do was it allowed me to feel comfortable just meeting people and connecting them because I would go talk to people that would have no connectivity either to anybody else in the office or to anybody else back in the New York office for sure. But it always gave me the ability to introduce someone from the other offices to people in the local office and say, you should really talk to Takahashi-san because they're doing something with these tools that you use in New York that you haven't seen yet. Right. It was the same type of thing that you do today when you walk around. And I did this when I was going to the Hive every day in Bangkok. I was on the fourth floor, but I would go down to the third floor and go up to the fifth floor and just literally poke my head into an office and say, what are you working on? How does that fit into with what you're doing here? Is your whole staff here? And I met a lot of really interesting people, including the Teach for Thailand people, the JetQuote people, a whole bunch of people doing businesses that I never would have been introduced to. And now I still know them, even though they've scattered, I'm still connected to them. And again, building that network because people are nomadic means that that network for me has now expanded. And I learned how to do that when I was in my 20s. So mm. now that I'm older, I continue to do it. It's something that the big organizations really struggle with, isn't it? They try and institutionalize this. Like, how do we create this cross-departmental team? That's the sort of thing that they always struggle with, isn't it? Because we're siloed here in this you know, telecoms business, for example. I speak from experience. Right. You know, they're so siloed. The engineers don't talk to the marketing team, don't talk to the whatever. That's their problem. But it's, you know, can you, I just wonder because if you were to send those people to these co-working spaces, they could see what's possible. Is it sort of a personality thing or can you sort of train people to do this? Get up, walk around. You know, it's a big sort of, they say here in Japan, like the Toyota way, like the Genshi Genbuts, isn't it? Get up, get up and, as the Americans say, was it get your boots on, right? Go and see. Go and have a look around. Go and see. Get out of your chair. Get out from behind the desk and go and see what other people are doing and just expose yourself to new ideas. Yeah, I mean, I do think you can actually institutionalize it. I think it would be interesting to say that you can't, but I, I really believe that you can. I think you just keep people on a constant rotation basis. In other words, get up and go to another city and either talk to people that are in your particular company but talk to people in a, in a different industry and just find out what they're doing that's different, come back with new ideas, right? And I think that fits into what a normal digital nomad will do. So if you're originally from California, like Yuri, right? So Yuri does this thing, does this business in the United States that's SMS-based. But he, come he comes to Thailand or he goes to Vietnam and he hangs out in a coffee shop there. And he says, wait a second, I'm sitting in a coffee shop and I'm talking to other people that are sitting in a coffee shop. Maybe there's a business, and he's done this actually, around connecting people not just to co-working spaces, but really high-end coffee shops in the region where people are working, and maybe I can create serendipitous meetings there. And he actually spent a lot of time testing and building a video app that videos coffee shops in sort of nomadic cities in Southeast Asia. And he's just working on that to test and see how that works. So I think there are a lot of ways that you can actually do that and build things from that and learn as you go. And, and, I, and he's a perfect example of how that works. Right. There's a, there's a few companies out there which are engineering themselves around, I suppose, digital nomad workers. I mean, you've got companies like Buffer, which are you know quite a well-established social media company. But you know, one of, I think for them, it's a key recruitment edge that they can say look this is our culture you know our guys can work in coffee shops like your man yuri right that that's what they offer the employees 
So they're successful at doing that. And I guess, you know, I'm curious to know whether or not other companies are going to catch on with this. You know, whether that's going to work. Because I think years ago, I mean, I was, I was an employer as well, Michael, and I employed people. I was really suspicious about people working from coffee shops and at home. But now that's Why? changed, right? Why? It's an interesting question. Why? And because because even Marissa Meyer, right, when she went to Yahoo, like canceled all of those remote working things. Right. Did you think that there was some amount of institutional, I don't know, disconnectivity or laziness built into working from home or working away from the office? I hadn't seen any good examples of it working out. I mean, this was going back to the early two thousands. I hadn't seen somebody said, "Yeah, this is a great case study." So when people said they're working from home, I had, you know, I visualized people waking up at 10 in the morning, switching on daytime TV, that kind of thing. <laughs> you know? But what do you, what do you think about that today? And, and so I had one of the first um, two channels, 64K ISDN lines in Tokyo. Right. right? So I had a Sun workstation. I was doing um, systems administration for a floor of a hundred and something sun microsystem workstations. And I had a sun machine at home and I would leave the office at six or seven o'clock at night and go home and just sit in front of my machine and manage the whole network from home. Mm. Now maybe it's just because I'm a technology geek, but I loved the whole concept of being able to control things from my desk in my house mm. as opposed to having to be in the office. And I had some really interesting experiences doing that. For instance, I would have traders at the time call me and say, I can't get my market data anymore. And I'd be able to log in from home. And I'd say, sure, let me take care of that. Now they would presume, because in the old days I would have to literally get out of my house, go into the office and recycle a modem for them. Wow. Again, it looked like, we talk about this a lot, but it looked like magic, right? Mm -hmm. They'd be yeah, back up and they'd go back to trading or whatever from their homes at night. But once we instituted this remote connectivity, I could do some of that stuff from home. Hmm. It still looked like magic to them. But, but it gave and, – and I used to do that as well when I started trading too. I'd take a laptop and I'd have my Bloomberg installed on it and I'd come home and I'd set it up on my table at home. And as I'm having dinner, I just watch the market move. Yeah. So for me, it, it, it does this thing where it gave me kind of 24-7 connectivity to my office. Mm. And I, I loved it actually. Mm. So it never seemed to me to be something that somebody that was really lazy would do. It almost seemed to me to be something that somebody really – um, enterprising would do and, and I, because I, I believe really strongly that people will kind of people will kind of rise to the occasion that the people that are lazy at work will be lazy at home but the people exactly. that are working really hard will always work really hard regardless and again maybe that's me just talking my own position but I believe that's really true yeah I, I think, agree with you I think so today sorry go ahead. yeah I, I totally agree with you especially if you look at this generation of younger workers who are living this digital nomad lifestyle it's a conscious choice not to have an easy life, really. You know, they, they've chosen a certain environment to work in because they're entrepreneurial and they want to escape the, the confines of bureaucracy within an organization, which will stifle that kind of creativity. So I think the people that are attracted to this movement now and the ones I've met are phenomenally entrepreneurial. I mean, there's a lot of entrepreneurs, as they say, out there, but, you know, <laughs> you know there's a lot who are doing crazy stuff which... For them, it's completely the right environment because they're, they're experimenting with things, they're doing, you know, they're, they're building projects and making a lot of mistakes, which you would never be allowed to do in that corporate environment, right? So they can do that with the burn time they've got in a place like Chiang Mai. 
absolutely go out and make you know hundreds of mistakes until you find what works right so i think it really is attracting the best entrepreneurial talent as well from that from that younger generation now i think so and i think there's a little bit of a myth of i can sit on a chair on the beach drinking a mai tai and <laughs> coding right because i don't think and i don't think that's what we're actually discussing but I do believe that there's this, this sort of mythical coder who's sitting on a beach somewhere and creating the next Facebook. But the reality is I don't think that's true because I do think you need this human interaction. And I talk to people here all the time who say, you know, I can hire a remote team, but I've been much more productive having people, even from, like I said, from different companies and stuff, sitting in the same space and just talking to others about ideas. Yeah. And then using that exchange of ideas to go back and build their product or build their stuff better. And because... As you mentioned, companies like Buffer, companies like the Nomad List, right, that allow people to go out and get organized, companies like Igloo, and even companies like Unsettled, that kind of teach people how to be remote workers, means that unlike our experiences from 10 or 15 years ago, people aren't out testing this. Yeah. They're actually out learning and doing it and then sharing their experiences with other people so that people can actually learn how to be remote workers better. You know, last week we talked about healthcare and medical tourism. And one yep. of the things you said was about this idea of if you were to build a hospital from scratch or any kind of healthcare service from scratch, you could effectively build a much better system because you're, you know, you, you would be able to jettison all the legacy stuff, which wasn't mm -hmm. Effectively creating a better experience for the for the patient, right? Yes. So in a way, these that medical tourism, which was taking advantage of geo arbitrage, that whole industry was in a way showing the way for maybe established healthcare providers. And there were options. We talked about some you know, crazy ideas, but some not so crazy ideas about what could be in that industry within the next five ten years. If I bring this back now to digital nomads. You know, if you look at it from that way, if you were to engineer a company from scratch, you know, using the ideas that we're talking about here, could they then teach bigger organizations and God forbid, you know, large corporates how hmm. it could be done? Yeah, I mean, completely. And you just made me think about this whole concept of the, you know, the medical industry combined, with, you know, medical industry, health tech medical tourism combined with digital nomads, right? Like in the old days, and, and particularly some of the companies we, we talked about last week, mm. if you think about a, a Doctors Without Borders, right? So a doctor having to get on a plane to go do an analysis and go tell people like what is and isn't wrong with them in some place that's disadvantaged because they don't have access to medical care. Mm. In a way, those, those doctors can do kind of reverse um, digital nomadness by staying at home and allowing others to benefit from their connectivity, right, through their mobile phones, mm. and be the distributed healthcare providers that they want. And that's, I think that's partially what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And that's amazing. Yeah. Right, so the different business models you can create, but even the different service models without being a business, right, because Doctors Without Borders is not necessarily a business. Mm -hmm. but those types of things, and this ability to distribute your team, and all the learnings that are associated with that concept of being a digital nomad means you can provide services like that you could not have provided just a few years ago. What, one thing I've found, Michael, is when I talk to digital nomads and the ones that I've met, you know, I met a lot in Chiang Mai, Ho Chi Minh City is another place where they hang yep. out, Bali as well. It's a different group, but 
they're still digital right. nomads. You know, one thing I've found is that they, it's kind of different to my generation, our generation, is that they tend to view everything more as a project. You know, they're more, they're happier to work on project basis. So, you know, they don't go to a company unless it's a Facebook or Google and think about a career. So nothing's a career. It's just a project. I'll work here for six months because they're doing interesting stuff. I'll hang out with these guys. I'll do that. And then I'll move on and do my own thing. And at the same time, I'll have something else on the go. So there's a real flexibility, a fluidity in that whole working environment, which, you know, for me is completely new. You know, compared to what I was used to at the same age in my 20s, right? Right. I mean, and that's, again, something else that we've discussed, this concept of, um, like, social-based and project-based work is changing the necessity for you to always be in the same place at the same time. And, again, it, it facilitates this nomadic life. And, and I think that's very significant as well. And, and I know people that do that too. And I know people that are actually building businesses around that, right? We talked about social seal a few weeks ago hmm. and the whole concept is I want to work for somebody for six months or nine months because I think what they're doing adds value to the world. It fits in with my purpose in life. I also want to travel and that fits into my desire to travel. And you mentioned something earlier, you touched on it a few minutes ago, but this whole concept of Location-based or geo-arbitrage is really important. I knew you would like that as a trader. That word, that excites you, arbitrage, right? That's It really, do, it really does because, I've, and again, I think we talked about this a little bit last week yeah, too. Yeah, we did. Because it, it's, it's a market balancing force. Yeah. Right, so how does that work? Well, let's just use coders, right? Because they're the, they're the classic digital nomads. But let's say... I'm sitting, in, I'm sitting in San Francisco and I say to my boss that three of us want to go live in Bali. Now my boss says, that's fine, but I'm not going to pay you $125,000 a year to live in Bali because your cost of living is too low. It's going to be slightly more difficult to contact you and I'm going to have to provide you with some, a little bit of excess technology so that we can communicate better and more um, reliably. And you say, sure, because I want to be living in Bali because I love to surf. So they end up paying you a little bit less money, maybe $75,000 a year, where in a place like Bali or in a place like even Phuket, you can live better, do the things you like to do, but it saves them money. But what ends up happening is that $75,000 that you're making then is much higher than what the local salary will be. And I think that everything ends up kind of reverting to the mean. Again, in an arbitrage-based market, the, the more people that take advantage of that arbitrage, the more likely that that arbitrage is to close. Hmm. Right? For sure. But we're a long way away with Thailand right there. I mean, it's not like it's going to close in the next couple of years, right? It's, it's not. But, but you have this really interesting dynamic, and that is you hire a local coder, hmm. okay, who's making, let's say, three or $4,000 a month. But then you bring somebody in from the United States who for lifestyle reasons or from Europe who for lifestyle reasons wants to live in Bangkok. And they were making, let's say, $10,000 a month in their home country. And they say, I'll take a discount to live in Thailand, but that's now $7,500 a month. Hmm. I know someone who's done this, moving from New York to, to Bangkok. Right. The only issue there is that, sure, they're taking a little bit of a discount, but the local staff at some point find out and that's when the arbitrage could potentially start to close. 
And because they happened, want a raise, right? Yeah, because they want to make more money. But then what they actually end up figuring out is, wait a moment, what if I do the reverse? What if I, even inside the region, right? So what's the highest um, GDP per capita spot in the region here? Everybody, it's easy for people to figure out. That's Singapore. But the second highest is Malaysia, and Malaysia does a really good job of promoting kind of the digital lifestyle and digital businesses. So let's say you're from Vietnam, but you're really good at some sort of UI and UX design. Maybe you'll move to Malaysia. Hmm. Now you've taken advantage personally of that geo arbitrage to provide your services in a country that's not that far away. Where we talked about earlier, air travel is relatively cheap, right? Now everybody can fly. And it's not just AirAsia, it's Tiger Air and Hong Kong Airways and all these lower cost airlines that allow you to move freely. And that you start to see the arbitrage closing. In other words, it benefits everybody. And that, in my mind, that's a very good thing. Right. Yeah, for sure. So where are we now with the numbers? Let's have a look at some of the data. We've got this recent publication which was in the economist right which showed which listed out the cost of living worldwide and it's interesting that the top 10 cities in terms of cost of living the five out of the top 10 were in asia so singapore mm -hmm. as you say number one i mean it's got it's I'm got just thinking the same thing horrendously expensive in recent years hong kong yeah tokyo osaka uh, those are the top, they're in the top 10. So, but interestingly, Bangkok's down at 51. Right. I mean, that's yeah, fantastic. I mean, in terms of quality of life, you know, okay, you're not going to get Chiang Mai prices, but for somebody coming from San Francisco, for example, as a coder, you know, they're going to probably, I don't know, they're going to get double their money for what they're paying or whatever it is, they're going to get a better deal, right? Dollar for dollar. Well, Easily. I mean, if you look at that article that was in TechCrunch that we were talking about or that we looked at earlier, right, there is a, there are people that want to live in the place where they think that the best things are going to get created. So they do tend to congregate in some cases in the most expensive cities for reasons that seem slightly illogical from a cost based perspective, but maybe slightly more logical from a these are where the best things are going to get built. And that's why everything is more expensive type situation. Mm. Right. Um, but I, again, I believe that that all gets that it, that all gets priced out over time. And, and you're right. You know, Bangkok is the 51st most expensive city on this list. Remember, Chiang Mai doesn't even rate on this list. Right. So what does that tell you about how expensive that is? And the other thing I thought that was really interesting about this analysis, besides the fact that they showed sort of the movement in prices from the last one year, last five years to today, is that five of the cheapest cities that they list in this top 133 or four of them, I believe, we're in India. So right. even with all the growth and all the news and all of the investment in India, what do you have? Like you have Bangalore, Mumbai, Chennai, and New Delhi, cities I believe really strong that 15 years ago were not necessarily up to global standards. Now, you know, Chennai, Bangalore, Mumbai, these are places where anybody can live, right? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting speaking to a lot of digital nomads that I know, India is always something that they consider and some go and do it. And Bangalore, I guess, is probably the one which is more, most set up for that kind of lifestyle because it's, you know, it's got the tech scene. It's a bit more international than the other cities. So they do go and try it out, but they all gravitate back towards Thailand. They do, don't they? Yeah. They all go, I went to India, didn't work out. A bit to do with the internet, a bit to do with lifestyle. 
it's cheap as chips, but you know, Bangkok, Chiang Mai, and some a little bit now, a little bit about the islands are, are picking up because they're getting co-working spaces down there. But right. they all come back to Thailand because I think, even though Thailand's a bit more expensive compared to India, lifestyle-wise, they're getting far more. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's not going on in India, right? So it seems right. to me, they, yeah. Yeah, and there's a really good balance here, right? And one of the things that foreigners do when they get here, we and again, we talk about this all the time, but there are market gaps, right? And there are gaps in every type of industry, whether it's in coffee shops, bars, restaurants, service providers, made for all these types of business. A lot of the foreigners come here, whether it's in Bangkok, in Chiang Mai, in Phuket, and even in some of the smaller cities, they'll kind of make it their home and then they'll look around and say, what do, what do I need here to make this a better place to live? And they'll say, we need open art space. Hmm. So in my neighborhood, there are at least two or three art spaces opened. But there's one called the Rebel Art Space. There's one called Tribes Community. And these are places where they're trying to add more culture into what's going on, even in a little neighborhood, rather than just doing tech development hmm. and taking advantage of what's already there. So they're building out that infrastructure. You can see people... I wouldn't say complaining, but saying, well, I want to live in San Francisco, not just for the money, because again, they're making more, but they're paying more, but because of my exposure to other really intelligent people and all the arts and interesting cultural things that go on there. But the real digital nomads, when they move to another place or just travel there, even for a short period of time, help build those things yeah. as well. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know what else I thought was really interesting on this list? Is that if I had said to you, without showing you this list, where do you think the economist would peg Dubai mm. versus Bangkok? Right. As where's like the most expensive or least expensive between those two cities in the world to live? You probably would have put Dubai. Like oh yeah, for sure. Mm. Right. Where is it on that list? It's number sixty-two. Serious? It's tied for sixty-two. With Abu Dhabi, obviously makes sense because it's UAE. Right. Um, Luxembourg, Dubai, Montreal, Dhaka. Dhaka? It's Istanbul. But when you think about right. Dubai, you don't think it think of it as in the same context of, you know, Dhaka. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Not that there's anything wrong with those places, but, you know, the, the tallest building in the world, right? The, the Burj Khalifa is in Dubai. So you just think about it as this sort of gleaming new city. Hmm. Yet there are places there where, where real people can really live. Interesting. I um, never thought it was cheap. I never thought it was value for money in Dubai. I yeah, think I mean, maybe when you actually go there and live there, then you have to have you know all the the trappings of living in Dubai, and maybe it changes a bit. I don't know how they're working it out. So maybe, but again, you know, what do you really need when you're building one of these places where you want digital nomads to go? Right? You want access to travel. So there's there are two massive airports in Dubai and one in Abu Dhabi, so and two brand new airlines as well, right? Emirates and Etihad. So traveling to and from there is really easy. It's also a transit point, so a big hub for other major airlines. If you're traveling from Asia to Europe, you're likely to stop over there. Hmm. And if you get off of the main road, right? What is it, Sheikh Al Zayed Road? There are plenty of places where you can stay that, that, that are reasonable. Hmm. But and also remember, when you're living there, if you have a local, if you're living there for like two months at a time and you're actually getting paid there, the, the income tax rate there is zero. Right. <laughs> okay. I mean, beyond the money. I mean, to me, 
I hold on not Dubai because I've been to Dubai. I've been at many, I've had good times in Dubai, but as a place to live compared to like Bangkok, oh, it's know, not a comparison, right? I mean, you know, you know when they do these like lifestyle surveys of like the best cities to live in, in the world, and it always you know you get like it's always like Zurich or Auckland or Helsinki or like these cold. You know, it's northern cities or, you know, Auckland down south, it rain a lot. Right. You know, and they say, oh, the lifestyle's fantastic, you know, like Vancouver or whatever. And, it, you know, it rains for like 300 days a year. It's like, they, <laughs> how, do they, how do they do these surveys, right? They just do, oh, yeah, the good education. Does anybody actually look at what's going on outside? And I wonder, like, you know, you compare Dubai and Bangkok as well. I mean, Bangkok for me oh. means hands down. I'm laughing because you know the way this works, right? People in Vancouver are now going to stop listening. Because... Well, you know, at Michael Waits. That's, that's where the tweets go. Exactly. Email Michael. Um, look, I agree with you. I think it's – I'm always fascinated by somebody who wants to spend time in a, in a cold location. I, I, think, I think Bangkok provides, like I said earlier, like the best balance between and, – and between culture and cost of living and quality of life and all of the things that go into making it a great place to be for either a long or short period of time. And I think that's one of the reasons why when you become a digital nomad, you kind of gravitate towards Thailand. The cost of living here makes sense, but also the ease of living here makes sense too, right? And I think weather, at least in my mind, is a big deal and the weather here is beautiful. Yeah. Do you think the... uh... I mean, within a generation, the digital nomad thing would become mainstream, just in the same way that, you know, the hippies went backpacking in the 70s and all that. And now, you know, all students seem to do that. Now, the whole digital nomad thing, which is kind of, I mean, we have to mention Tim Ferriss and the four hour work week book, which kind of kicked all that off. You know, he was the one that put, put this idea of geo arbitrage out there, you know, live on pesos, outsourcing rupees and selling dollars. You know, he put it out there and a whole generation picked up on it and think, wow, you know, this is possible. It's kind of still a bit of an alternative lifestyle. Do you think we're going to see it as a mainstream option? Like within, you know, I mean, your daughter's going to go to college. Will this be something that she could consider? I mean, what do you think about that? I don't think, I think there's a secular change in the world that's getting accelerated by recent politics about anybody's desire to live in any specific country at any particular time. And I think it does, in fact, accelerate that nomadic lifestyle. Let's say you ha- are, you know, not a citizen of a particular country. You've been working there for two years, and then you find out that you no longer feel welcome in that country. You just pick up stakes, still get paid by whatever company for whom you're working, whether it's you know Yahoo or Amazon, and you move across a border, mm. and you keep working. And I think. One of the things that has made the United States as a country, at least in my mind, so successful is that there's what I have always called labor force mobility. And I think the digital nomad is just, like I said earlier, an acceleration of this labor force mobility. Mm. And I think it is going to allow people to continue to do this. And it might have been sort of trendy, starting with Tim Ferriss. And then you have a few, few years in where some people attempt it and try it. Some people succeed. Some people fail. But I think as we move forward, people are going to want to live in a place where they really want to live. And and part of it means moving out of cold locations unless you're really into skiing. I mean, I used to wonder why, (laughs) you know, you would live in a freezing cold place if you had no job there. Yeah. Like as hard as life could be, wouldn't you just want to get up and hitchhike to a place where it was warmer? (laughs) But isn't that the thing? I mean, that's such an interesting question to ask is that the people who – 
get the answer are the ones who say, yeah, Michael, I get it. I'm, I'm packed. I'm going. But then you talk about labor force mobility, but that's not a, that's not demographic, sorry, democratically distributed, is it? I mean, like with any but, kind of change, there's the winners and the losers, you know, like some are, it's the, the mobile ones that are going to benefit, right? The people you're talking about, but then there's going to be the people who miss out. And are, you know, what's going to happen there? Because this is the people, these are the people that aren't mobile and it's not necessarily they can't be mobile. They just don't know or they don't hang around with the right people. Well, I don't know. I mean, what's going on? Right. So I think the concept where pick a country like Thailand, where most people's exposure to the Internet is over a mobile device. And you have a situation where and this gets back to conversations we've been having for months as well, where you have mobile devices in a prepaid society that are really inexpensive. And even if you only have access to the Internet and information periodically, um, it's hard to stop even in a country where your access to information could be restricted by whomever is in power, at some point you can learn. So in the old days, if you were living in a small town that didn't have access to more than one newspaper, and if that newspaper's information was skewed because of whatever the local corporation was that was skewing that information, you were kind of stuck. Hmm. And you didn't know what it was like to live, not just in another town, but in another state or in another region. But now the internet allows you to kind of see and aspire to things that exist in other places. Being a digital nomad is part of that, but also not having access to to that information previously, but now having access to it means you can say to yourself, look, I'm out of here. If I'm suffering here, I might as well go suffer somewhere else and see if there's a better opportunity there. And I think that that's, that's how this is going to manifest itself. And I don't think it's going to stop, actually. But I also have this theory that this global labor force mobility and this increase in information will change the nature, and this is very philosophical for you know, an afternoon, but I think it's gonna change the nature of what a country really yes. is. No, I, I can go on, I, I'm, I'm digging this. This is what I wanna hear, I wanna know more. What do you think? Well, because who, who ends up, in other words, let's say, I'm, let's say I'm born of two parents that aren't from the country in which I'm born, right. but that that country does not give you citizenship just by being born there. So the US, if you're born in the United States, you're a citizen of that country, regardless of whether your parents are literally from Mars, it doesn't matter. Let's say you're born in some country where you're, you're not from there, but you live there for a while, and you just don't feel any connectivity to the place where your parents originated. Hmm. So who are you really? And, and who gets to regulate you, and which governments do you adhere to? And remember, these governments are all grown out of trying to organize people around a certain philosophy and those philosophies are really not, they're not starting to bifurcate because that, that implies that there are only two opinions. Mm. They're really starting to spread out into multiple really strong opinions. And as the world gets more connected, it means that these little niche um, opinions kind of end up being little countries of their own. And it means that the physical borders become less and less meaningful and the philosophical borders become more and more important, if that's a decent way to explain that. And people are going to start to gather around things and with people with whom they agree. And whether that gathering occurs physically, as we discussed earlier with co-working spaces and coffee shops, or virtually, because maybe you can't afford to travel to the place where the people with whom you agree actually reside, I think it's going to have a really significant and kind of paradigm-shifting change on the way governments are allowed 
or able, not allow, but are able to sort of regulate behavior in specific geographical locations. Wow. Isn't that interesting in the times that we live, given what, what do the- you think? But I, and, and I think that is a slightly an outlier opinion, but I think that over time people are going to start believing that, wait a second, I don't yeah. have to live here. And yeah. if I don't have to live here, where do I want to live? Where can I travel? Where can I test? And again, that gets back to this whole concept of being a digital nomad, which moves it out of the realm of just being um, you know, for coders and for UI designers and UX designers, and just for people across the spectrum to say, where do I really want to live and where is the best place to live globally? And I think what's going to happen is over time, in the same way, if you think about it this way, right, you saw migration, right, across the globe, right? So people walking literally from the tip top of Russia into Alaska down into the United States, right? That was real human migration. People moving out of Mesopotamia and spreading out through Europe, right? People crossing from crossing the oceans to move to different places looking for a better opportunity. Well, now you act, and before those were explorers, right? You can go back to any explorer you want, whether it's, you know, pick one, Christopher Columbus, it doesn't really matter. And when they got there, then they tried to send messages back to people about how good or how bad it was and ask for more resources. But today, you can get that kind of communication instantaneously. And I think what you're going to see is it's really easier to live physically in a place where the climate is temperate, Hmm. particularly if you can create food there. And there's an entire discussion we can have around indoor farming and the, the modern way to create food as opposed to on a gigantic farm somewhere in the middle of Nebraska or in Russia or you know, rice in the middle of Japan and say, people are gonna start migrating, I think, en masse to places where it's just easier to live. And it's gonna be hard for governments as they exist today and countries as they exist today to regulate that. I, I think there's a possibility in 100 years to see a massive border shift in geographical locations because the technology allows people with similar thoughts and values to gather together in places that are easier to live. Yeah, I completely, I'm on the same page. I don't know how it will look, but I mean, what we know, we don't know, do we? But you know, we know that what you're sort of challenging is the whole notion of what for us has been, you know, a story that's been told for many, many years that we we've never thought there was an alternative, right? And you know, the whole idea, I mean, borders are at the end of the day, arbitrary, right? In many cases, they have just been drawn on the map, right? In between some countries. So, you know, what will change that? And I, I, I think you're going to get this shift as you're talking about, and it's going to be driven by people making a decision. There are going to be people who are going to be left behind because they, they don't make that decision, but it's not a decision then based on whether or not they have the money or access. It's whether or not they want to. So, you know, I think that's fair. You know, you can get up and go. Nothing's stopping you. you how much does it cost to get an AirAsia flight around Asia, right? You know, you can get that for less than a hundred bucks. You know, that's access to a lot of people. Sure. And I think what's going to happen is, is this, I suppose at the end of the day, that's going to be the pivot point within the next generation that those that don't do that are going to miss out in terms of the companies and the, the technologies and so on. And this is, I, I don't know if I'm going way off here, Michael, so pull me back if I am, but there's this really interesting idea. If you go back in history, look at the shift between the Iron Age and the Bronze Age, 
Now, the interesting thing about this is the Iron Age. If you think of all the old Iron Age civilizations, like, you know, the Egyptians and so on, you know, they had iron, which was their core resource, which was useful as a weapon, but it was brittle. So, you know, they couldn't develop decent arrows or spears or swords or armor. So, they, you know, they were okay up to a point. But then it's the people who had bronze that create all these really robust technologies, you know, like shields and chariots, you know, like armor and stuff like that. Now, the interesting thing about bronze is this, and this is why I think it's interesting. I'm going off a little bit here. Bronze is a, a composite of copper and iron. And <clears throat> copper and iron are never found together. So if you want copper, you've got to go to like Ireland to get copper. But if you want iron, you've got to go to like North Africa. So it was only the civilizations that were trading and moving between all these old world ideas of their little kingdoms right. that could get access to this technology. And it was a direct result of this arbitrage, this trading between, you know, going over traditional borders. And it was the Romans, effectively, that broke all that open and destroyed all these old civilizations. Maybe that's a grand theme, but I don't know, technology-wise. Well, it's interesting because I was just about to make a similar case. I mean, aren't we making the case that the digital nomads are the explorers of the modern age in the same sense that somebody who walked along the Silk Road between Rome right. and Beijing or Rome and Xi'an to either trade or just find out new information. And remember, some of those people ended up settling in China and some of the Chinese people ended up settling in Italy. Um, but And they sent messages back to people saying, hey, life is way better here than it is there. And then other people had a different opinion and said, actually... I've left this place that, where you are, and I've gone to a new place. But I, I believe that there is this secular change taking place, and for the same reason, and that is the combination of these differing assets, whether it's, <clears throat> you know, whether it's copper and iron, or just the exchange, or the free exchange ideas. It leads me to believe that the traveling of the digital nomads is similar in some respects to the explorers who went to different lands and, and different geographical locations to figure out whether it was better or worse there. And think yeah. about what that did to borders and to governments and mm. to just sort of geopolitics. And I believe that we're just at the beginning of that as well. So if, if Tim Ferriss is the beginning and a digital nomad is the expression of that writ large, what happens next to the impact of all those people traveling, using technology, creating companies in different places. And really, you can say internationalization is bad and you can see this sort of nationalism building in the world right now. I didn't expect to talk about politics today. But what it means is that people are now starting to mix in globally in a way that was never possible before. And I think it can only mean that we're gonna see a real change in the way people live, work, um, as far as we can see into the future. I think you're just going to see a continuation of this change and technology and digital nomads are right at the beginning of it, I think. Michael, I really enjoyed that this week. That was a really interesting subject and we went all over the shop. But that was fascinating. And tweet yeah, us. Kind of... Answer Michael's question, what will happen? Yeah, what will happen? What do you think? What what do we... Let think? us know. Tweet Michael Waits, tweet asia tech podcast be really fascinating to find out people's opinion whether they're on the same page yeah very interesting topic i don't think it's the last time we'll talk about it either so i have a i have another what's the big surprise i think do it, people let's do it. like talking about this 
we talked a little bit about this last week when we talked about food and food delivery and sort of my feeling on this concept, right? And I was just reading during the week a company called Fingerlicks, which is a pretty funny name for a company, um, has raised $3 million from Zephyr Peacock. This is a story I've seen in E27. And they're going to deliver ready-to-cook food at your doorsteps. This is like Blue Apron and companies that are similar like this in the United States. So very little innovation here. They're just saying what's worked in another place and see if we can build it here. The only problem is that the way these companies work, and I haven't done all the research on Fingerlix, right? But the only problem is the way these companies work is you've got to subscribe to it. So you have three meals a week coming. And I think we've talked about this in another context. I don't think anybody, you know, you make dinner plans with your male friends, with your female friends and friends and say, let's meet on Tuesday night. And then Tuesday morning comes along and something happens. You have to cancel those plans. Right. The only problem is you've committed no capital and, and no like energy to doing that. You just cancel. It's not, it may not be friendly, but it happens all the time. It's life. And these companies where you have to order food in advance because they want to get the portions right and give you the right recipe and maybe even connect you to a video online to show you how to cook it. They're missing the fact that, again, if Tuesday somebody shows up from one of your college friends shows up in town, which is very possible, again, getting back to the digital nomad thing we were talking about earlier, you're not going to want to have that meal. Mm. And that could actually start piling up in your house. And they should know this because they've seen this happen to some of these companies in the United States that do these pre-prepared meal businesses. I don't know. There's just $3 million maybe is not a lot of money to some people, but I just feel like this is won't be a big surprise, frankly, to me if this thing just disappears. Right. But it's a, it's a model yeah. that only benefits them, really, isn't it? I mean, like you have to order three meals a week. You know, the, the, a consumer never ever demanded that, did they? No. And I think people are happy going out to dinner, to be fair. Right. Like, I'm just not sure what's wrong with that model. Or ordering food. So they'll make the case, and I listen to Blue Apron, and I don't know, I've never experienced Blue Apron because I don't live in the United States, but I've listened to the ads, and they say, you know, statistics show that families that cook together are happier. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I think anybody that lives with somebody else, if they're more than, you know, whatever happened to that phrase, like too many cooks spoil the broth, yeah. right? Exactly. So I'm not convinced necessarily that that's going to work so well. I haven't tried it myself, so I can't comment. But I just want to say it's not going to be a big surprise to me if you read about this company in a year and it's just they're closing down because they've burned through the $3 million and they can't figure out what to do. Well, food makes a regular appearance on this show. And it's an incredibly hard nut to crack, isn't it? Because, well, the nature of food, it goes off quickly, all those kind of things that are built around the business model. I'm just curious to know whether or not there's anybody in that digital nomad space doing something about food. That would be really fascinating, isn't it? Because maybe they can approach it a different way. Because I imagine if you approach it in a way like, okay, we've got to have the food startup, we've got all these embedded costs, therefore we have to get three meals a week out to the consumer to make this price match up to the cost and so on. Whether you could do that back to front and say, okay, what does the customer actually want? How do we build a lean business around this? Yeah, I mean, everybody says that, and I'm quoting from the article here, right, with rapid changes in consumers' lifestyle and food choices, the convenience food category is set for massive growth. Right. And that may or may not be the case. But, I, you know, you're talking about something that's perishable, right? So we talked about this with food delivery. Like, to me, it's always a tomato, right, or, or a mango 
or an avocado, hmm. right? I want to touch the avocado before I buy it. Maybe I want to slice my own tomatoes. Maybe I want to, if I'm really cooking, I know plenty of people that love to cook and they like cutting and preparing their own food. They like switching up the ingredients. Today I want to cook this with a little bit more of this, that, or the other thing. And I just don't know, you know, so maybe what they're doing is they're going for a single man who doesn't know how to cook or doesn't want to cook. And right. I know that's a little bit um, sexist, but I, I think it, to it's some true. extent that that could be true. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a man, so I can pretty much say whatever I want about other men. Um, but I, I just don't think, like I said, that it's going to be a really big surprise if this thing goes away. Everybody keeps trying this and none of this is really working. Right. So that's my feeling on this. So that's not a surprise. But I was just well, again, it's not meant to be, you know what I mean? Like, that's a, that's a, please, please feel the heavy sarcasm. Uh, exactly. Well, Michael, great talking to you this week. Yep, good stuff. You can, if you have any questions or issues, you can look for me on Asia, I mean, hashtag me at Asia Tech Podcast. Um, also at Michael Waits on Twitter. Send me anything you want. Contact me. Look for me on LinkedIn if you if you feel like it and contact me there. But happy to answer any questions that anybody has. Yeah, excellent. And subscribe on Thanks. iTunes. Yeah, and iTunes. Also look for the YouTube channel. Yep. Asia Tech Podcast on YouTube. It's all out there. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.